This is the PR Podcast, a show about how public relations helps you tell your story to the world. We talk with great PR practitioners who have the skills, creativity, and just plain savvy to get their clients noticed. Now here's your host, Jody Fisher. everyone, and welcome to the PR Podcast. I'm Jody Fisher. Thanks for joining us. We start the show, as we always do, with a big thank you to everyone who subscribed to our podcast and followed us on social media. You know, this podcast is not about getting millions of subs, and it's certainly not about me making money. Though, if you want to hire me or any of the people we interview on the show, please do feel free to reach out. This is about sharing information and best practices and getting those ideas straight from the people who live them day in and day out, whether they're PR people, reporters, editors, photographers, videographers. We try to talk to them all here on the show. And so we try to pass along their knowledge to you so you can utilize that in your day to day. So subscribe to the podcast if you're not already. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Also check out our homepage on anchor.com. Record a message that we can play on the show or leave us some feedback there. And also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Continue to send your messages and your questions that you want answered on the show. So with all that housekeeping out of the way, let's get right into our guest for this week. Steve Kastenbaum is a radio journalist, former Westwood One News senior correspondent and New York bureau chief, a former CNN radio New York correspondent, and a proud native Brooklynite. Steve has done it all. He's traveled all over the world. He's covered breaking news, important stories that shape our world, and we're really thrilled to have him here as a guest. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jody. I'm happy to be here. It's good to talk with you. Uh, we, we cross paths every once in a while, but you and I actually started out together in the 1010 Winds newsroom in New York City many years ago, right? That's right. Uh, while I was just 19 years old, I started working part-time uh, in the newsroom at 1010 Winds when we still had reel-to-reel tape machines in the edit bays, and we still cut tape with a razor blade and a grease pencil. So uh, we go way back, yes. <laughs> Those were the days, absolutely. So things have become a little more technologically advanced uh, since then, but I, I think a lot of the core principles are probably still the same. So tell us a little bit about what you do as a broadcast news reporter. I imagine there's a special set, set of skills that you have. Yeah, definitely. I, I, we're not concerned with video, so we don't have to worry about this element that uh, TV journalists are so consumed with in order to produce a package, which makes our job so much more uh, easier, less complicated. And we're telling stories with audio. And uh, because of that, you know, we're able to really drill down into the, the core facts about a story and not have to worry about uh, how am I presenting this to a viewing audience. It's really just about the facts and uh, it enables uh, you know, a radio journalist, a radio reporter, a producer to really um, take, take people uh, on a journey with audio. You know, it's theater of the mind, they sometimes call it. Uh, and and it, you can do things very basically and just do a one-on-one -on -one interview. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Some of those one-on-one -on -one interviews are extremely informative and, and eye-opening and bring people information that they otherwise uh, did not have and, and maybe they, they bring a topic to a listener uh, uh, that, that's new to them or it expands their knowledge of a topic. And then there's the other way to go. You can really take someone on a journey by incorporating sound uh, from 
that uh, particular story area, wherever you are, uh, whether it's the streets of New York City, uh, maybe you're in a park, maybe you're at a press conference uh, indoors, you have the sound of that room that you're able to uh, bring into the uh, story when you're producing it. Uh, th there's all sorts of ways uh, that radio journalists make their reporting distinct. And, and, and I love telling a story with audio uh, and not having to worry about video because so much of what you see in a television package, in a television news package, is, is what they call B-roll. It's fill. And they, they need to fill up the screen with something while they're talking. And uh, in radio, you know, we, we, we don't have to worry about having to gather an extra added element that to me is really kind of just fluff. You know, it's not really part of the story. It's there to catch the eye. Whereas audio, you know, any audio that winds up in your piece and your reporting, whether you're doing a one-on-one -on -one interview or, or using that sound, uh, the ambient sound from your story scene is actually part of the storytelling. It's, it's integral. Uh, it's, it's, an it's an integral part of the storytelling, and it's needed in getting that, uh, that information across to the listener. Yeah, I, f I feel like that, um, what you and I refer to as natural sound, right? The background noise that you might mm -hmm. hear, uh, for, depending on the environment that you're in. It can be so evocative, and it can be so critical in telling your story. I mean, you and I are sitting here, you know, uh, on a couple of microphones with with virtually no sound behind us, right? But if we were just we, if we just simply threw some some uh, street noise behind us, it would sound like we're standing out on you know Forty Second Street in the middle of Manhattan, um, right? And and we could almost pretend that we are, right? Um, yeah. And, and that would evoke a certain emotion from the listener. Um, so you you're right, and and you and I both started out as as radio reporters, and 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 I've always felt the same way that you know while while TV reporting um, is important. Um, the, the visual is, is very literal, right? And the, mm -hmm. the way you can tell a radio story using that background sound, that natural sound, um, can be so much more evocative if you want it to be, right? And, and that means the radio reporters have to work a little bit harder, you think? I think so. I think that we have to be very aware of what's going on around us at all times. And uh, when you work in long form radio, especially, uh, you're recording everything. You know, you're recording, you're walking into a building to set the scene. You're recording your interviewee uh, introducing themselves and, and telling you the, uh, their name and, and explaining who they are, what they do. Uh, you're, you're using every aspect of your, your work day uh, in your piece uh, or potentially using it in your piece. You don't, you don't stop recording. Uh, and, uh, and I think you have to be thinking about that all the time how something might fit into a piece uh, that you're out doing interviews on or out doing, uh, doing some investigative reporting on, investigative journalism on, uh, you're constantly thinking about uh, elements of that story and, and making sure you have them. Because it's really, you know, nothing's worse than going home. You have all your tape. Uh, and, and, you know, it's often said that, you know, for, for TV and, and radio, it's kind of similar. Uh, sometimes it can take an hour of tape to get a minute of, of material. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, so sometimes you can wind up getting back to your studio or if you're working out of your home and listen back to all that tape and then realize, oh man, I didn't record that one little thing and I need that. <laughs> and, and there's no, and there's no going back. So you, um, you, you know, you, you just record everything now and, and, and it's a lot to go through, but, uh, you know, when you remember, uh, that you have these different elements that you can put into the storytelling, 
that uh, really helps to tell the story. It makes it a better piece. And again, there's nothing wrong with a with a one-on-one interview like like the one we're having right now. That's perfectly fine. If a person is a newsmaker and an expert, that's all you need. You just need that one-on-one information. But other stories require uh, more sound, rich uh, production, and and that's that's my wheelhouse. I love those types of stories. Yeah, it's interesting that you've mentioned that. That you know, I I listen to a whole bunch of podcasts. Uh, during the week. One of the ones that I enjoy listening to on a regular basis is the New York Times, The Daily, um, right. which is sort of an expansion on you know, the story of the day. Um, and, and I've heard them more and more frequently over the last couple of years um, using just what you're talking about, sort of that natural sound or that in-the-moment sound of a reporter out on, on the street walking up to someone and talking to them. And it's not like they're standing there going, here we are on the street, you know, sort of announcing themselves. It's almost like this background ambient noise where you hear them say, you hear them walk up to somebody and say, hi, I'm so-and-so with the New York Times. Would you like to talk to me about such and such? But it really sets the scene of right. what they're doing out there. And they're, and they're primarily print reporters um, yes. who are gonna be filing a print story or a written story, um, but they're utilizing that sound in the same way that you and I do as did, did do as radio reporters, right? Yeah, it, it's interesting because when I was at CNN Radio, we were pioneering what the New York Times does now with the Daily, and we called it Newsday, uh, and it, and we released it every day at around four thirty, and it was at the top of the CNN.com homepage, and it's almost exactly what uh, the Daily does now. And uh, it was really an opportunity for us to experiment and, and use our creative juices. Uh, CNN gave us a, a wonderful opportunity at the time to, to do this. And it was coming together. And each week it got better and better. And um, it's, it's something that I'm very proud of. It's one of the most, uh, m- most distinct moments in my career that I'm, that I'm extremely pr- uh, proud of the work that I did along with my colleagues at CNN Radio at the time, because we were really pioneering that daily audio news podcast and the format it's almost exactly what the new york times is doing today it's unfortunate that uh, cnn uh and uh the the president of the company jeff zucker at the time uh decided that the radio wasn't in his uh, future business plans and and killed the radio unit uh because had uh, cnn acknowledged where podcasting was going uh you know we could have been at the forefront of it at the time and that was our goal you know we had this long-term business model in place at the time. And it just wasn't part of Jeff Zucker's uh, vision for the, the, the CNN product. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's uh, when I hear the, the New York Times daily a- every day, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of bittersweet for me because, <laughs> you know, we, we, we could have, we, I feel like we could have owned that real estate in the podcast market uh, if if CNN had had stuck with it, but you know it's business. It's nothing personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly is. But news has changed so much over the years. Um, and when when we talk about being a broadcast reporter, whether that's radio or TV, um, we used to think sort of in cycles, right? And there was like the morning news shows, the midday news shows, the afternoon news shows, and then radio was kind of in between. But even radio worked in cycles as well, you know, like the, the even hour, odd hour kind of thing, or you refresh the show every few, a few hours, the morning, the afternoon. Um, but what used to be 12 hour news cycles, you know, a, a couple decades ago, or maybe a decade ago, became a 24 hour news cycle. And now with the rise of social media influencing news gathering so much, 
Twitter, Facebook, what have you, it seems like our news cycles are hour to hour and even minute to minute. Um, you know, uh, you, I was talking with uh, someone on a previous episode and we talked about how, you know, they're doing political PR and they've got their arms wrapped around a story and what they have their person wanting to say and suddenly a tweet comes in a deadline and it completely upends the storyline that changes the questions the reporters are asking. Um, and, and it can really, um, I, I don't want to say throw a wrench in it, but it kind, of, it kind of upends everything and it's sort of minute to minute. How do you keep up with it all and how do you focus on what you think is important when you're reporting a story? I think it's really hard to stay focused on what's important today, uh, especially when newsrooms have been uh, somewhat um, decimated, really. Over the last 10 years, the, the size of a newsroom has, has shrunk. Uh, there, there are certainly some uh, news outlets that still have very large staffs, like, like NBC News uh, and their various entities at NBC, uh, but everyone has, has shrunk. Uh, you know, CNN's a great example of that, uh, of, of how the, the staff has shrunk, but they're doing more. Uh, and so staying focused is really difficult. And, and the emphasis is on being first. You know, you don't want to miss something. And I think that's unfortunate because it um, doesn't give journalists the time to go in depth as much as they used to. Uh, it certainly means investigative journalism uh, has had to find uh, new uh, so, sort of benefactors who see the value in, in investigative journalism and want to fund that because it's not part of the business model for many uh, news outlets uh, these days, especially television news outlets, uh, television news networks. It's, um, it's, it's extremely difficult to stay focused. You don't want to go to bed at night. You're afraid you're going to miss something uh, the moment you close your eyes and then wake up in the morning and find out you missed something. It's, 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 uh, very anxiety inducing too. It creates a very stressful work environment for everyone who's in journalism. You're constantly uh, flicking through Twitter and, and, and your social media feeds and, and everyone else's social media uh, outlets, uh, their accounts uh, to make sure you're not missing something. And, and it's, um, it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, we see this just incredible tsunami of, of information that's coming out every minute, really. And it's, it's hard to decipher, first of all, what's, what's important, what's relevant, and, uh, and what's, what, is, what isn't, what's just a diversion, what's, what's just misinformation or, or just out there to distract you, and, and, and what you should be focused on. It's really hard to, to do that in today's landscape. Uh, and, and Twitter, I think, sort of leads the pack with that. It's, uh, you know, this constant stream being updated. And, and uh, as a reporter, you know, it's unless your editor tells you, you know, just focus on this today and don't look at anything else. You know, if you have a beat, <laughs> you don't want to miss anything. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, uh, it's nerve wracking. Yeah, it, it's, I, I see it come over the transom and, and every time I see so much of this information coming down and I follow, you know, official news outlets, the reporters who work for those outlets, um, you know, and, and I try to be very, very discerning with, with what I follow, what I choose to consume um, and pushing away as much of the static as I can. Um, I, I can't imagine the stress that you and other reporters are, are under in trying to cover a story when, like you said, this, this tsunami of information is, is coming through the social media pipelines. 
um, and you're just trying to make sense of the story you're working on that day. Um, Absolutely. And then, and then you have, you know, a very purposeful disinformation campaign going on, you know, uh, over, over social media uh, these days. And, and, and so on top of all the actual real news, you have journalists who are trying to set the record straight, you know, when that stuff comes out and, and uh, it's, it's, it's frustrating. Well, and, and I wanted to get in that, into that with you too, because yeah, I, I, as a former reporter uh, and now, now PR person, the, the one thing that I've always relied on is the factual truth, right? What mm -hmm. are the actual facts? And even as a PR person, you know, people, people sometimes accuse PR people of spinning, which is like nails on a chalkboard for me. You know, in my opinion, PR people don't spin. They represent their client, but they always tell a factual story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because because you're trying to tell that to a reporter who you want to report that factually, and so if the mm -hmm. reporter can't believe you, then you've burned your relationship with the reporter, right? Um, mm -hmm. but, you, but like you said, there there's, and I think this has really come to a head in the last four years. And I don't want to get political, but you know that's the facts. <laughs> this has mm -hmm. come to a head in the last four years, and I think there are some culprits out there who have done intentional misinformation, engaged in intentional misinformation um, for whatever reason they feel that they need to. Um, but you've been outspoken on social media um, and let some of your personal opinions be known. And I know that I do the same on social media, even though sometimes they say, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that because um, you might lose business. My opinion is if, if you have a problem with what I think, I don't probably don't want to do business with you anyway. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, 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 uh, uh, do you think lots of reporters have Twitter feeds, right? Lots of reporters yes. are outspoken on Twitter. And, and I personally think they should, they can be, and they should be. Um, but do you think, or what are the challenges maybe, do you think that that, that has um, with the, the objective way you need to go about your job? Understanding that, yeah. understand maybe we can get into the definition of what objective is too, but do you think that blurs the line of objectivity for a reporter? Um, how how objective can a reporter be um, and how is a reporter objective? You know, what does that mean to mm -hmm. you? So so for me, a lot of what uh, is out there that some people might say is, is, is personal opinion. Uh, I'm actually reacting to something I've seen on on someone else's Twitter feed that uh, in my experience out in the streets here in New York is wrong. And so uh, I'll take, for example, right now, the whole uh, New York is a ghost town, New York is dead uh, thing that, that the president amplified in the last debate. Uh, clearly, New York is not a ghost town. Clearly, it's not dead. And I'm very passionate about that because it's, it's a lie. Yes, we're going through an incredible struggle right now and an unprecedented crisis. Uh, and that crisis is made worse by what some people would say is a, a failure in leadership in city hall. And so I'm not denying that uh, we have problems here in New York. I'm not denying that those problems aren't serious and long lasting, but this, this narrative that New York city is dead, that it's a ghost town is a, is a myth. It's a lie. And so to some people it may come across as opinion when I combat that and, uh, and, and I can understand that because uh, they, they might not be here, you know, they, and, and so their, their images of New York uh, are colored by whoever it is they watch on TV and whoever it is they listen to uh, out there in, in social media. 
but um, it, it's not opinion. You know, it, it might be very strongly worded when I put it out there, but it's based in fact. You know, there, you know, I'll share information about what's going on here in New York and the struggles that people are uh, experiencing right now. But at the same time, I will show that it, it isn't a ghost town. And with coronavirus, that, that's another uh, issue where uh, after having lived through the worst of it, uh, how, how I can uh, speak very uh, specifically with expertise about how bad it was here in New York, literally right outside my window at Brooklyn Hospital, I, I feel that I can talk in very strong language, uh, but very uh, anchored in facts when I do that to combat uh, uh, misinformation and, and perceptions of coronavirus that are just wrong. And, you know, if, if people want to say I'm expressing opinion, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come back at them and, and say no. And, and here's why this is an opinion, that why this is fact. But, you know, sometimes I'm just not going to change their views of, of what I'm uh, doing because, you know, they have their own <laughs> views and, and uh, ideology maybe. And, you know, their, their heels are dug in and they're not going to be convinced otherwise. Yeah, it, it, the, that, that, uh, that wretched phrase, alternate facts, jumps to mind, which I think <laughs> is one of the worst phrases that's ever been, and, and frankly, most damaging phrases that's ever been invented. Um, because I, I don't think that we can accomplish anything that we want to accomplish if we can't agree on facts, right? And something mm -hmm. as simple as, you know, the sky is blue, that's an oversimplification. But, right. or like you said, you know, you look out your window at what's going on across the street and you see it with your own eyes and you report that as a reporter and someone says, just because they disagree with you or that's not the version they, of reality that they want to promote, they say, oh, well, that's not the truth. And so right. we've got this, this sort of bizarro land that has, that has sown distrust in the people who we actually trust, like yourself, to report information, factual information to us on what's going on in our world. And I think we've, we've arrived at this, this very dangerous place in our, in our society. Yeah. I'll give you another example of that. Um, you know, there's, there's often criticism of the uh, Trump rallies, for example, uh, because people are seen uh, not wearing masks. Uh, events like the, uh, the announcement of uh, President Trump's Supreme Court uh, justice nomination uh, at the White House, and there were people indoors at the White House, not just outdoors. And we later learned that uh, this was the potential super spreader event that led to the president uh, and others getting coronavirus. Uh, you get people who go uh, online and say, so it's not okay for uh, Trump supporters, but it's okay for Black Lives Matter uh, protesters to go around by the thousands in March uh, during, during the pandemic. And they say that the, the news media has a double standard. And, and, and it irks me because then I go back and I show, no, it's not, the, it's not an equivalent. And here's video and here are photos of all of the protests I covered here in New York. And almost every single individual is wearing a mask. Whereas uh, if you look at these videos and these images of, of that Trump rally or that indoor gathering at the White House, and people are not wearing masks. And so there is a difference. And, and, and so... Um, again, people think, oh, you're siding with one side over the other. And, I, and, and for me, I'm just presenting facts. I'm, uh, I'm showing that it's a false equivalence because there is a difference in, in the way the two groups were behaving. And yeah, sure, of course, I acknowledge that some 
people at some Black Lives Matter protests in some parts of the country haven't been wearing masks. But here in New York, I can only speak to what I've covered. And it's been my experience and the experience of my colleagues that there is near universal adherence to mask wearing mandates uh, at the Black Lives Matter protests and marches. And so I'm going to make that clear. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting world we're living in right now. <laughs> And, and, and it's got to be interesting from your perspective, too, as a reporter going out and covering these things. I mean, you, you see the stuff up close and personal. Um, you see far more than you are able to report, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's so much that goes on that simply doesn't make it into your reports because there's not enough time and what, what have you. Um, and you want to report the, the main things that people uh, should be understanding. Um, flipping the script though a little bit in terms of how, because it is the PR podcast, right? We want to talk about how reporters mm-hmm. and PR people um, interact. Um, and certainly, you know, as a PR person, I am pitching stories for my clients all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's based on, you know, my success is based on my relationships with reporters and sort of what they think of me and my work. Um, mm-hmm. uh, how do you, do you entertain pitches from PR people? I mean, you're covering a lot of breaking news and you've, co- you've traveled all around the world to lots of different news hotspots. Um, so I gather you probably don't get a lot of, or, or even concern yourself with a lot of PR pitches, but sort of in a general, or maybe you do, but in a general sense, you know, how do you interact with PR people, if at all? So, you know, I, I know public relations uh, account uh, execs are very well aware that so many of the, the emailed pitches just wind up in the trash bin uh, every day, and that's got to be frustrating for them. Uh, but it's, it's just, you know, given this news cycle right now and given uh, all those things we talked about, about how the, the 24-hour news cycle is so anxiety-inducing and, uh, you know, people just don't even have the bandwidth Sometimes, you know, producers, individual producers don't have the, the bandwidth at, at times to uh, even read those pitches because they're so engrossed in covering the news as it's unfolding minute by minute. And uh, it's uh, for me, you know, when I was at Westwood One News, uh, the uh, pitches that came in were, were most useful for me uh, for leaving evergreen pieces uh, over the weekend that would run and that would be distributed to our affiliate stations. And there were um, a good number of, of public relations uh, uh, people who represented certain uh, clients who were able to uh, pitch stories that, that uh, they, they knew fit our needs as, as, a, as a radio network. And uh, they were stories uh, like, for instance, you know, surveys about shoppers about retail shoppers uh, that, 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 you know, they may release that survey on a Thursday, but it's still good for use uh, on Saturday to me as a, as a reporter and fills a need because there's less news going on on a Saturday and a Sunday than there, than there is on a weekday. So, you know, we, we looked for those stories uh, regularly every week that we could uh, put, put in the can and have set to be released uh, on a Saturday or a Sunday to our affiliates, and maybe even even used on a Monday morning. Uh, the the stuff that could be um, uh, piggybacked onto uh, government economic reports uh, was often really good good and useful for me as as a radio journalist. I could I could do interviews 
with um, with those experts at those various uh, businesses, various entities that tracked maybe retail spending or or maybe tracked retail businesses and what the trends were, or uh, or maybe the the, the credit card industry and, and, and consumer credit. You know, I found things like that to be very useful. Um, um, industry uh, groups, maybe in, in the housing industry or, you know, things like those uh, that, could, that could be, again, piggybacked off of government reports, which come out every week. Uh, it was very uh, useful to, to get those pitches. So I would look for those, those particular uh, public relations account executives emails because after, after using them once or twice, uh, I knew that uh, they had somebody, an expert that I, I can rely on uh, for an interview or recorded interview to put out some uh, recorded pieces that were interesting, that uh, were uh, stories that weren't the, uh, the main story, were um, a sidebar off of that uh, government figure that was released. And that was really helpful. Uh, hospital public relations executives got a workout, obviously, during coronavirus, uh, during the pandemic uh, in its worst days here in New York. And uh, the, the folks at some of the larger hospital corporations were extremely helpful in dispelling myths and uh, separating fact from fiction and also telling us what was going on with advances in, in, in research and understanding this disease. You know, I found the people at Mount Sinai to be extremely helpful because they were running several uh, trial studies while also doing um, patient uh, history studies and gathering information through that. So that was interesting. They were doing um, the uh, blood plasma treatment uh, at the time, in addition to other um, uh, therapeutic treatment studies. Uh, so I found them really helpful um, and some other hospital groups as well. And then the individual hospitals uh, had their own public relations people, uh, the independent hospitals uh, who, who you know, need, needed to get their stories out. And so uh, you know, those people making themselves available to us uh, almost 24 seven. Uh, was was greatly appreciated because it helped to tell the story by putting us in touch with people who were on the front line. Um, but you know, it's it's um, you know, I know public relations people have their clients and they have to represent them and they're paid to get those people uh, uh, on you know some some coverage. But it's really difficult, you know, uh, when when uh, you're working on a particular story as a journalist or as a producer. And you get these pitches uh, over uh, that come across your uh, inbox that have nothing to do with what you're working on every day, and uh, so uh, you know I'm sure it's frustrating for both uh, those those newsroom employees and the public relations executives as well. Yeah, it it, it sounds like uh, what you're talking about is is something that that we talk about a lot too, and what I urge uh, uh, other PR people to do is know the person you're sending it to, maybe not specifically the person, but, but know what that person, that reporter reports on, know what they're interested in, um, and also just be relevant you know, to, to what they're doing. You were talking about you know, pitching experts. Um, that's a great way to not only provide value to the reporter and to the reporter's audience, but to um, grow a reputation and grow a relationship with a reporter is to just make sure that you're delivering them some value, something that they can use, um, but having, having some familiarity with the reporter in the first place. You know, don't, don't pitch a consumer story to a, a real estate reporter or what have you. Um, yeah. pitch, you know, pitch, pitch them on their beat, pitch them on what's interesting to them, and also know what they're working on. Um, you know, we'll go back to what you 
you know, what you have done over the course of your career, which is you're, you're I, I see you on social media, you're jetting off to this breaking story, that breaking story, you're traveling all around the world. Um, that's not the time to be pitching you on, you know, a weekend story, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, you definitely have to know who you're pitching and what they do. And uh, it's, uh, you know, don't, it's, it's really just not helpful to send out uh, these, these blind, cold uh, emails to, to thousands and thousands of, of journalists across the United States because it just winds up in a black hole. And I don't know that it's the best use of your time and energy. It's, it's more useful to really drill down on a few journalists who you know cover areas that your clients uh, work in and, and to get to know those reporters. Put the time in, the investment in getting to know these, these people, find those opportunities to meet them to, uh, because every producer uh, is, is at some point accessible. Uh, maybe they're, they're, they're out uh, on the road covering a breaking story or, or they are um, at a panel discussion somewhere, whatever. The producers are often accessible at some point. Uh, and you, you've got to know uh, who they are and, and what they cover and, and, and find the stories that have the bylines uh, uh, written by people who are writing in, in your client's topic area. And those are the people who you really have to develop relationships with. Because it's um, it, just to go through the motions of sending out the, uh, you know, the, the, the mass email to thousands of reporters when it's just going to wind up in the trash bin. Anyway, I don't know that that's, you know, great use of your time. It's, 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 um, and, it, and it can wind up, you know, turning a reporter or, or producer off to you. And, and, and then every time they see something come into their inbox from you, they just click, you know, check it and click delete. And so you don't want that. It's not good for your client either. So uh, yeah, get to know reporters, get to know producers individually. And, and, and that's how you get your clients in, in, uh, on when the opportunity is there. It's not going to happen frequently, you know, but when that opportunity does happen, that's when the reporter or the producer is going to remember you. Yeah, great advice. Great advice. All right, Steve, it, it is time for our rapid fire questions segment where <laughs> we ask our guests to give one or two, one word or one sentence answers to the following five questions. We're kind of ripping off inside the actor's studio here, but we're going to okay. go for it anyway. All right, so here you are in the hot seat. Ready? Uh -huh. Question number one favorite news source? Oh, uh, WNYC. All right. Local shout out. Very good. Yes. Uh, Twitter or LinkedIn? Twitter. Coffee or alcohol? Coffee. Lots of it every morning. <laughs> <laughs> but I do now, like my scotch. I definitely like single, single malt scotch. So, uh, but that's at night. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll, put that, we'll put that on the holiday gift list. What kind of, what kind of coffee, by the way? Oh, it's got to be a dark roast. And uh, yeah, it's definitely got to be a good quality single bean dark roast. Definitely. You've got, you got a good selection there in Brooklyn, I know, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, if you're going for a local brand, if I can do some public relations, I love Gorilla Coffee. Uh, they're roasters in, in Red Hook. Awesome. All right. Everybody go check them out. Um, favorite on the road food? Diner food. I mean, uh, if you want me to get specific, uh, with a particular dish, uh, there. Uh, not only will I get specific, I'll tell you where to get it. Uh, there is an excellent diner in, in um, Burlington, Vermont, that makes some of the greatest pancakes uh, I've ever had, uh, and it's an old school diner <laughs> that goes retro 
with uh, their uh, their interior and their uh, their waitresses' outfits. And now the name is escaping me. Why is it escaping me? Oh, <laughs> listen! If you go to Burlington, Vermont, just search diner, and it's going to be the first uh, the first name that comes up in the results, and you will not be disappointed. Trust me. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, if anybody if anybody's tuning in from from uh, from Burlington, please let us know. Um, all right. And last question here, rapid fire. What do you want to be after you finish this career? Oh, uh, you know what? It's funny you say that. I actually have uh, a, an idea, a, a real answer to that question. I want to open a nostalgic Brooklyn donut shop in honor of my grandfather because he used to own the neighborhood donut shop on Kings Highway in Midwood. And it's kind of where my uh, interest in journalism and current events started because the counter that everybody sat at was this repository of information as people talked about the news of the day while reading the Daily News and the New York Post every day. And so uh, I want to open up an old school donut shop like that. Oh, that's, that sounds good. I will be the first one there when you do that. Thank you. Well, Steve, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking all this time. Please let people know where they can find you online. Well, uh, you can certainly uh, keep an eye out for some podcasts that I'm working on about the, the resiliency of New Yorkers during uh, this uh, economic crisis that we're experiencing through the coronavirus pandemic. That'll be coming out soon. I hope to launch that very soon. Uh, and you can just uh, check out my name, stevecastenbaum.com. Uh, my website's getting updated uh, as you and I speak right now. <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right, we'll, we'll check that out for sure. Well, thanks again, Steve, and thank you everyone for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the show and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The PR Podcast, and send us a question or a comment. And we'll see you next time on The PR Podcast. Mm -hmm.